First Timothy 2, as we continue to make our way through this letter, we will actually finish the second chapter tonight. And if you've been with us last month or two, you know Paul wrote Timothy um, to encourage him, for one, and also to confront these false teachers. He did that especially in chapter 1 and continues to do that as we move in to chapter 2 and 3. Really, in chapter 2 and 3, we've already seen him correct bad theology as well as bad practice. But we really see in chapter 3 that what Paul is doing, he's describing how the people of God should behave in the household of God. That's what chapter 3, verse 15 says. So this is all the context of corporate worship. And Jason's been hammering that the last few weeks. So I hope you're you're getting that as well. And last week, if you were here, Jason uh, went through verses 9 and 10, where Paul addresses the women in the church, encouraging them to adorn themselves in godliness and good works, not in their outward appearance with provocative or fancy clothing, but with godliness. And tonight, he'll continue to address the women as well, showing them how to display that character in their role in corporate worship. That's our focus for tonight. So, chapter 2, we will start reading in verse 8, just for the context, but our focus will be verses 11 through 15. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Verse 8. I desire then... That in every place the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us that your law is perfect, revives our soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts, Lord, are right, causing our hearts to rejoice. And your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. All your rules, Lord, are true and good and righteous altogether. Father, help us tonight to really humble ourselves before you and your word. Especially because this world sees this passage so differently than we should. It's this outdated, unfair, chauvinistic text. But Lord, this is your word. It's a gift to your church for us to grow in godliness and to direct us in how to honor you. So Lord, humble us, empower us, and help us, Lord, to trust you and obey. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as you know, there are many controversial passages and doctrines in the Bible all over the place. Uh, Some of those passages and 
doctrines are controversial, namely because they're not perfectly clear. One example of this might be the millennium. You guys know if you were here when we went through Revelation, millennium is really only recognized really clearly in Revelation 20. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate on what the millennium is and what other passage kind of connects to it. But it's not perfectly clear what the millennium is. One pretty relevant example for our church is probably baptism. Right? And a lot of us probably wish there was that one verse or a collection of verses we could point to and say, look, look, there it is. Right? Baptize your infants or don't baptize your infants. Instead, we have, have to really depend on how we see the whole Bible fit together and the covenants and so on. And so there's been a lot of debate and different views over the centuries. Well, there are a lot of doctrines like this. And you'll be assured that they're not the essential doctrines of the faith. But there are many doctrines that Christians have divided over, namely because they weren't clear. But you know what? The exact opposite is true as well. While some passages and doctrines are controversial because they're unclear, there are some passages and doctrines that are con- that are controversial namely because they are clear. And we just don't like them. And that's one of those passages that we have here tonight in 1 Timothy here. And I don't know if Paul could have been more clear than verse 12. Or you heard it. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. No qualifications, right? No exceptions. He, it's really hard to argue with that, especially when it's supported all throughout this book in Titus, in 1 Corinthians 14, and other places of the Bible, and as we'll see, it's supported with other doctrines, namely creation in this text. Yet there are still people, not just in the church, by the way, there are still people in the world and in the church who will say things like this about this passage. This is from Paul Jewett, a professor at Fuller Seminary. At times, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about this passage, slips into his old sexist rabbi mentality appropriate laughter right this is it's ridiculous that he would say this here i mean the implication there you can get this is that well we have to decide for ourselves when paul is being truthful and when we're hearing from the old sexist rabbi and we can just dismiss it because you know we're enlightened now and we know better and we know how things should be in the church maybe you've heard some of these things maybe not to that extreme But I know I've heard this week in my study and throughout my life, I have heard Christians call this passage outdated, oppressive. Heard some say that Paul is being chauvinistic here. Even some go as far as saying Paul is being sinful. These are Christians, by the way, saying this about God's word. Well, with a passage this controversial, we better make sure we understand it well. And not just understand it and come to grips with what it means. But since this is God's word, we should learn to love it. Learn to praise God for what he teaches here in this passage, no matter how hard it might be for us to accept it. So, what is Paul teaching in this passage? What is this controversial doctrine that he's talking about? In a nutshell, it's this. The role of men and women in the church should reflect God's created order. And again, we're talking in the context of corporate worship. So really the role of men and women in corporate worship especially should reflect God's created order. In other words, God calls men to lead. Yes, clearly in the family, but also in the household of God. Which means by default then that women should not lead and they should not teach, which is part of their leadership as well, the men in the household of God. 
Instead, Paul says, they are to learn, to be disciples, to look to Christ, to trust and obey, like, by the way, a lot of other men in the church that are not office holders. So that's what Paul is saying here. And again, I hope you can see it's not that complicated. It's not really unclear, but it's very unpopular. And so we need to get our, our minds wrapped around it. So I want to draw your attention to three points tonight as we walk through this text. First is really the role of women in the church, specifically in corporate worship. That's in verses 11, 12. That'll take the longest because there's a lot to sort out there. Then the reason for that role, that's in verses 13 and 14, or the rationale, have so many R's, I can't think through this all. But the reason for that role, and then the restoration of all things in Christ. We'll see that in verse 15. So the role of women in the church, 11 and 12, the reason for that role, and then the restoration of all things in Christ. So look with me at verse 11 as we begin to see the role of women in corporate worship here. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. That's really interesting what gets our attention in this verse. I'd be really curious if I did a survey, the the words that stood out to you are what? But for most of us, at least in our world, the two words that stood out the most to us when we read this is quietly and submissiveness. Because those words are, are, they're off limits in our culture, right? They're like curse words almost in our anti-authoritarian culture. Some even go as far as read this and say, wow, Paul, you are, you are devaluing women. You're taking away their voice. You're causing, you're telling them they need to submit and, and shut up. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's not devaluing women at all here. It's actually quite the opposite. And we miss that because we miss Paul's main command, which is right in the beginning of the verse. His main command is let a woman learn. Learn. Actually, the word there is where we get our word for disciple. Let them be disciples. If you don't know, that was actually pretty unusual in that time, in Jesus' time. You don't take on women disciples. It was really controversial that Jesus did it. And Paul is now saying, let the women come to corporate worship as disciples. The Babylonian Talmud actually talks about the life of the synagogue. And it says when, this is the Jewish faith here, the men come to the synagogue to learn, and the women just come to hear. So the expectation is the men are being discipled. They're the ones that are going to grow in knowledge and, and preach the word and teach, and women are just there. Or, at worst, in some cultures, even in our world still today, they're pushed outside of corporate worship. Really is seen a lot in Muslim cultures. They don't deserve to be there with the men because they're devalued. Paul's not doing any of that here. He's affirming women, recognizing they're made in the image of God, fellow image bearers of God, calling them to join the men in being disciples and learning in the corporate worship service. But Paul does make distinctions. He clarifies the manner in which they are to learn, and it's different and doesn't devalue them at all. Paul says, first, they are to learn quietly. Learn quietly there. Now, you may think that means silently, or some of your translations actually do say silently. I think the NIV does that. But that's not the idea here. It's not dead silence. It's not that we're in this corporate worship context, and if I I hear a woman laugh or make a comment to her husband like, nope, stop service, get her out of here. That's not what we're talking about at all here. Silently, in this context, really has to do with orderly and controlled. Controlled passions is really what this whole section is about. Men controlling your passage of argumentation so that you can lead. Women controlling your passions to dress in a way that would get attention to yourself. And women controlling your passions to want to lead in the first place. And really, this word quietly is used up in verse 2. 
Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. You might remember this. Right in the middle of the verse, why are we to pray for our rulers? That we may lead a peaceful and what? Quiet life. That's not a life of silence. That's not a life of just complete not talking at all. That's an orderly, peaceful life. So Paul is calling on women to learn quietly, humbly, in an orderly fashion. Don't come into worship in an unruly fashion. Speaking out, complaining about the teaching, interrupting the teaching. These things most likely were happening in the book of, excuse me, in the book of Ephesus, but also in the town of Ephesus. Paul is confronting these people that are, are living this way. Instead, they should come into corporate worship quietly in learning and with all submissiveness, as the rest of the verse says. Now that again probably also leaves a bad taste in our mouth. We're proud Americans, right? We don't submit. We rule over our own lives, right? We know what submitting to authority will get you. So we see in our culture, especially submission as weakness. We see submission almost as foolishness because it's like, well, if you submit yourself to someone else, you know they can take advantage of you. That's how we see it in our world. But that's not the way the Bible sees submissiveness at all. Not negatively at all. It's actually seen as a virtue all throughout Scripture. We are all called to submit In various ways and in various contexts. Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul calls every single one of us, all Christians, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's not just the women women that were saying, come on, be quiet, submit. All Christians submit to one another in certain contexts. Hebrews 13, we're called to submit to our leaders in the church, our rulers, the elders in the church. Romans 13, we're called to submit to our governing authorities. And all of us are called in all through Scripture to submit ourselves to God. Now, if we see submission as a negative thing, then we have a really big problem with Christ. Because Christ submitted to the will of his Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. Listen, he humbled himself, submitted to God, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So if Jesus submitted to the Father, does that mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father? He's less valuable than the Father? He's weaker than the Father? No, not at all. Scripture is abundantly clear that Jesus is truly God, equal with the Father. But he submits to the Father's word, as Paul is calling the women here. Paul's not saying women are weak and inferior. That's why they need to submit. And Paul is not calling, by the way, all women to submit to all men in every context. Again, we're talking about the context of corporate worship. So what's Paul saying? He's saying women submit to the men that are leading the church in corporate worship. Submit to the teaching of the church, which comes from the elders. He's calling the women to submit as learners, as disciples. He's also calling the men that are not office holders, not specifically in this text, to have that same role as learners and disciples. Women are not coming in to learn by the process of teaching. They're not coming in to learn by that dialogical back and forth, argumentative, objective kind of process. No, they're receiving the word. They learn by putting themselves under the authority of God and God's word and the teachers that God has put in that place. 
I think the best example in my mind that came to my mind this week is Mary in Luke 10. You remember the story with Martha and Mary? Martha is upset even that her sister isn't serving and helping. And and there's Mary at the foot of Jesus, listening, learning. And Jesus actually rebukes Martha and says, no, Mary has chosen what's best. Women in this church, that is the model. That doesn't matter if you're 8 or you're 80. You are called by Paul and by our Lord to be learners here. Disciples, learning and growing in grace. And it's important also that we realize that even though these words are directed at Timothy, they are directed at the Ephesian church because they were having issues with somehow unruly women. Maybe they were some of the false teachers or the false teachers were encouraging it. That does not mean these words are only for the Ephesian church. It doesn't mean they're only for churches even in that time. Paul is using this as an opportunity to teach all churches throughout all of history what the women's role in the church, in corporate worship, really is. We know that because he's emphatic about that. He he restates what he said in verse 11 in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach. In Ephesus? No. In this time? No. One day they'll be more enlightened than they could teach? No. Nothing. That's not there. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Same word there. That quietness is is wrapping this all together. Paul in verse 12 is really showing us, giving us a picture of what quiet submissiveness from verse 12 looks like. So not teaching is how women can be quiet in corporate worship. Not exercising authority is an expression of their submission. So if you ask Paul, what do you mean here? What are you talking about? Quiet submissiveness. What does that look like? He says it looks like learning. It looks like not teaching. It looks like not putting yourself in the authority to teach the word as the office of an elder, of a shepherd of the church, because those are only set aside for men, qualified men. It's no mistake, by the way, that right after this text, it's the qualification of elders. And Jason will deal with that more next week. And one of those qualifications is that they are men. Notice also Paul doesn't stop completely. I do not permit a woman to teach, period, anytime. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say women can't teach in any context, in any place. No, he says in a lot of his letters, and it's all throughout Scripture, there are plenty of contexts for women to teach in. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you being all the church, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There are ways where men should be teaching women and women should be teaching men in all kinds of contexts, not in corporate worship. Or Titus 2 or Ephesians 6, where women are encouraged to teach other women, especially younger women in Titus as well, or their children as well. Or think about the example of Priscilla and Aquila. I always get those mixed up because they sound like two women's names. That's not what we're talking about there, right? Priscilla and her husband Aquila, if you remember in Acts 18, they actually teach Apollos. Apollos was a gifted man. He's dividing the scriptures, preaching well, but he's a little off. And so what do they do? Do they interrupt corporate worship? Step in and say, no, you're wrong there. Priscilla doesn't step up and do that. After he teaches, they bring him aside in kind of a private uh, talk session where they, they correct his doctrine. 
And he becomes a better teacher for that. The Bible encourages that. So clearly, Paul doesn't believe that women can't teach ever. He's just saying they can't teach in this context. When the church gathers for corporate worship in the household of God. That's the idea here. And by the way, this does not mean that women, that elders can kind of hand over their authority to teach. I heard this argument this week. It's just shocking to me. Some churches actually believe what Paul is teaching here is that he's just prohibiting one thing. He's saying women just can't have authoritative teaching. So as long as women are not elders, as long as you kind of come up here as an elder and say, no, this is a non-authoritative role, they can share their testimony and do this kind of thing, then it's okay. See, some of you are laughing. I'm glad you're laughing at this. This is ridiculous, right? God, there's no non-authoritative teaching in the Bible. And if you want non-authoritative teaching, that's a problem with you, right? It's a teaching I don't have to obey. I don't have to respond to. That's not a good thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here at all. This would overturn this this whole universal statement. He doesn't say, I don't permit a woman to teach unless the elders give her permission. He doesn't say that. That would overturn the created order, which we'll get to in the next verse in a second. And it's not the language here. There are two things. Teach or, and actually in Greek it's even stronger, it's nor have authority over men. It's two things. Paul is prohibiting here women from holding the office of an elder from being in that place of authority as a ruler. And since they can't be in that place, it's their role to teach. That's not the only thing elders do, but part of their rule is expressed in authoritative teaching. So, of course, women are excluded from both. They're not completely separate. They're tied together in many ways, but we don't just squish them together and say, all right, non-authoritative teaching is okay. It's not how it works. Now, I'm sure if some of you, your minds are spinning, you're thinking, well, what about, what about Bible studies at work? What about schools? What about, you know, certain small groups or marriage conferences? What about this context, that context? I have an answer for that. It's really disappointing for you. Paul's not thinking about that at all. It's not relevant. Paul's not addressing those things. None of those existed at this time. Maybe a better question would be to say, well, why do we even have those things and in certain places? But the bottom line is when the church gathered, it was for corporate worship, and the men, the leaders, the elders taught, period. That's how it worked. And that's why Paul is distinguishing here. He's saying this is God's ordained model for the household of God when they gather. The teaching role is for qualified officers of the church, elders, those that have been qualified in our teaching, which are men, as we'll see in the very next chapter. I hope that's clear enough. But I'm sure most of us are probably thinking, well, why? Why is it this way? Why are men the only ones in this role and not women in in corporate worship? Well, that's where Paul goes next. After saying, here's the role of women in the church, he says, now here's the reason for that role. Verse 13. And notice Paul begins with four. As in because, as in here's the reason I don't allow women to teach. For Adam was formed First, then Eve. Really? That's your reason, Paul. Creation. Adam made first, then Eve. I think it's so important here that Paul doesn't go and appeal to culture. He doesn't appeal to political correctness. He doesn't say, look, this is just going to work better in our time. 
Right? We Christians are already hated enough. Let's not give them one more thing. Let's just make it easy on them, and we'll just allow men to teach because that's popular right now. Paul doesn't do that. He also doesn't appeal to pragmatism. He says, well, we have a lot of men that are good teachers, so let's just make it all men. He doesn't appeal to preference. He doesn't even appeal to tradition. It's always been. Haven't you read the Old Testament? All the teachers, the authoritative teaching is men. He could have appealed there in some ways. He actually goes all the way back to creation, which is where that tradition was even built. And that's important. He goes all the way back to God's design for men and women in the first place. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, by saying Adam was formed first, he's not saying that Adam is now superior because he was made first. You remember Eve, even though she was made second, she was taken from his side as this equal. Equal in value and dignity before God and before each other. They're both co, um, they share in the image of God. In uh, Genesis 1 chapter, or excuse me, chapter 1 verse 27, that's what it talks about. But even though they're equal in value, God gave them different roles. The men are called to lead and the women in general are called to help in Genesis 2. Now, all men are called to be spiritual leaders in their own household. And please listen, some men, some, not all, some men are called also to be spiritual leaders in the household of God. So it's not just the home that reflects the created order, it's also God's home, the household of God, his church. But what happens when this is ignored in God's church? What happens when these roles are flipped or when they're subverted? What happens when men don't step up and lead and teach or teach authoritatively like they should? And what happens when women have to jump into that role or when women seek that role to rule over men? Well, in a few words, it dishonors God, disgraces God, really, because it's subverting his design. And it leads to chaos and destruction, which is why Paul's second reason for saying, I don't allow women to teach, is not just the created order, it's the fall. That's the second reason. Look at verse 14. He says, And Adam was not deceived. Now that doesn't mean that Adam wasn't deceived at all. We've been through Genesis, right? We've seen that clearly. I think it's Adam was not deceived first. We're still talking first here. But the woman, woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now please hear this. I heard somebody say, look, look, there it is. Women are easier to deceive. That's why they shouldn't lead. It's not saying that at all. Terrible that that comes out of Christians' mouths, but I've heard people say that. Paul is saying, no, look, look here. This is what happens. This is the fallout. This is the chaos that happens when the roles are reversed. This is what happens when you ignore God's design. Because you remember, the serpent went after Eve. The serpent tried to usurp God's design, went after Eve, and Eve should have... Um, should have actually listened to God, listened to her husband. She should have called her husband over. He was right there, by the way, and said, what do you think about this? Called out to God for help. She shouldn't have taken the lead and eaten the fruit and then given it to her husband. And again, Adam's not innocent. We find out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, he was right there with her. And his silence is terrible. He should have led. He should have protected his wife. He should have rebuked the serpent. Called the seraphim over and said, get that snake out of the garden. That's what he should have done. And he didn't. He failed to lead. 
The woman took authority for herself. Both Adam and Eve sinned. Both overturned the creative order by giving in to Satan. And so Paul is saying, look, we don't want to do this again. This is what happens when women take that lead, that lead teaching role in the context of corporate worship. They're not just uh, accompanying the, the cultural norms. They're not just trying to make the, the message easier for women. No, they're overturning God's design. They're exercising an authority that God never intended them to have. And when they do that, when they step into that role and teach in the place of men, they're spreading lies about what God made them to be and who God is and the life of God's church. And that's why it disgraces God. And it does lead to a mess. We've seen it in many churches and denominations. can point to numerous ones. And Paul is warning here, look, we know where this path goes. Don't do it again. Don't go down this road. But you know what? Paul does end with hope. I love that there's still hope. This, these roles, this, this dynamic is not broken beyond repair. We're not stuck in this in the cycle where men fail to lead and where women usurp authority and try to jump into that role. No, Paul gives us hope in that the one that will come will actually come through the role given to women. This is amazing. He actually talks about the role leading to the seed of the woman, the restoration of all things. Look at verse 15 with me. And pay attention. This is a tough verse. So really pay attention to the pronouns here. That's the easiest way to sort this out, I believe. Verse 15. Yet she, singular, will be saved through childbearing. Who's the she? Certainly can't be all women, Right? Paul doesn't use pronouns like people on our day do. They, them, and whatever. No, she is still one woman. And we know that women aren't saved through childbearing. Never met anybody that said, you know, how are you saved? Well, I had kids. <laughs> doesn't happen, right? Paul is really clear. It's not faith alone and Christ alone and having kids. No, it's not another way of salvation. So who is this woman? Who's this she? Well, in context, clearly, we just talked about Eve, didn't we? She's the one he's referring to. She's the one saved through childbearing. That seems weird. How is that? Well, she's saved because after, you remember, after the fall, God gave an incredible promise to both Adam and Eve. And Eve repented of her sin. She trusted in the promise that God gave. The promise in Genesis 3.15 is God's handing out the curses to men and women and the serpent. God made a promise to the man and the woman that The seed of the woman will come, and he will crush Satan forever. The woman's role is to bear children until that seed comes. Bear and raising those kids. And she looked by faith in that Satan crusher to come. That Savior to come, which is Christ our Lord. She even submitted to her husband, right after that if you remember, by taking the name upon her as Eve. Remember, Adam named the animals. That was a sign of his authority. And then right after the fall, he says, your name is going to be Eve. You thought about that? Right after she gets the sentence of death, and he does too, I know your name is the mother of the living. doesn't make any sense unless they're believing the promises. That life will come through their offspring, the seed of the woman. And the woman submits and takes this name from her husband, repenting. And you see the, the roles kind of restored in just this small way. But really, it's going to be restored fully. Everything's going to be restored in the one to come, the seed of the woman, the one who fulfills that promise completely. 
So Eve wasn't saved just because she bore children in general. She was saved because the women, her line, would bear children and bear the Messiah, and he would save all of them. Do you think what a blessing this is, by the way, women? If, if you're fighting the feelings that I hear a lot with, saying, I want to teach. This is so unfair. Why don't I get to speak like that? Why don't I get to have that authority? I feel like my, my gifts are not being used. I feel like I'm in an unimportant role. The consolation here is Paul saying, you know, in the bearing of children, the Messiah comes and saves us all. Your role will bring salvation. That's the consolation. Christ will come through Eve, through her line. And that's the, the glory at the end here that we see. And actually, Paul moves to the encouragement for all the church because of this. Look again at verse 15. Yet she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. And listen, if they, plural, they being the Ephesian women in some ways, the unruly women, the unsubmissive women, he's actually confronting here. But also, by extension, all women, all fallen, really, in Adam and Eve, which even includes, in some ways, because we're all under the curse, men as well. If they continue in faith. Faith in who? Faith in the seed of the woman to come. The one that will set all things right. Continue in faith, in love, and holiness, with self-control. See, those aren't the things that produce their salvation. They don't earn their salvation with faith and love and self-control. Those are the fruits of their salvation. Looking to Christ in faith. Paul's saying, look, the hope of women, the hope of men, the hope of all the household of God is the offspring of Eve. Is her greater son, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the one who would come and live the life that all of us failed to. Not just Eve. Not just Adam. Every single one of us has fallen them into sin. And he will live and then die in our place, taking the wrath that we all deserve. The wrath of the fall. Raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell for all who believe, so that by faith we can be restored to our God. The fall can be overturned. Our sins can be wiped away. We can be adopted into God's family forever. And then the Holy Spirit goes to work on us, conforming us to the image of Christ, so that through faith we can be loving, holy, self-controlled people, And this really, brothers and sisters, is the godly character that we should all adorn ourselves with. The character that comes from Christ. It's not just for the women. It's not just put away those outward appearances and put on godliness. It's for the men as well. We repent and trust in God, and he produces this character in us. So that his church, his people, can reflect his character. Until Christ comes and restores all things. Even the created order that we reverse. So let's pray that God would come in Christ soon. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to even sort through the challenges of our culture and the way that this text is approached in many different ways. I pray, Father, you would help us be faithful. Faithful in upholding what Paul says here. Lord, that we would be joyful even that we can see a reflection of your design in the worship service among the people of God. I pray that when we see that, we wouldn't foster any sense of bitterness or regret, but Lord, we would praise you. 
Praise that you are restoring all things, even beginning in the church itself, setting all things right. We see the chaos in our world, but we get a glimpse of what you're doing in your church. Pray that we would turn and praise you to the end of our days, looking forward to Christ, the seed of the woman, who will finish that work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.